Welcome to the Southcrest Live podcast. If this is your first time to listen, please connect with us at www.southcrest.org for more information. Thanks for listening and enjoy today's message. Welcome to the Southcrest Live podcast featuring the teaching of Dr. David Wilson. This week's message is an introduction to a brand new sermon series reflecting on Christ's Sermon on the Mount, whose lessons on leadership, service, and life often fly in the face of contemporary culture. Open your Bible to Matthew chapter 5, and let's learn more together as we hear the Master's magnificent message from Pastor David Wilson. In fact, if you don't understand the Sermon on the Mount, Philip Yancey said, if you don't understand the, the Sermon on the Mount, you'll never understand Jesus. And so we're going to look at this sermon. Uh, interesting when you think about sermons. Some sermons are different than others. One stranger walked into a church and he got there late. The sermon had already started. And he sat down and he started listening for a while and the sermon went on and on and on and on. And he finally turned to the person next to him and said, how long has he been preaching here? And the other man said, three years. And he said, well, surely he's about done by now. <laughs> I had a person ask me one time, you know what makes sermons and biscuits better? Shortening. The Sermon on the Mount, traditionally called, we call it the Sermon on the Mount. Oswald Chambers referred to these words as lovely and poetic, but he also said their powerful impact is that of spiritual torpedoes. Now, the first couple of chapters of Matthew contain the Christmas story as well as the account of Mary and Joseph fleeing to Egypt because of the jealousy of Herod. And then Matthew also tells of them returning to Nazareth and the angel, when the angel told Joseph it was safe. When you get to chapter 3, we're introduced to John the Baptist and who baptizes Jesus in the Jordan River as a way of initiating his, the Lord's earthly ministry. In chapter 4, you find Jesus being tempted in the wilderness and then it also concludes, chapter 4 concludes with a summary of his what he's doing, in fact, it says that he is preaching, calling people to follow him, and healing people. And verse 17 includes the text of his first sermon that we have recorded. It was simply, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. Wouldn't you like my sermon to be that short, but don't answer that. <laughs> well, that brings us to chapter 5. And today is one of those sermons that some of you are going to think, well, I didn't really get anything to put in my pocket and take home with me that you can live out. But it's, such, it's one of these sermons that you need to hear and you need to understand because if we're going to look at the Sermon on the Mount, you need to understand what's going on at the time. If you're going to be accurate in interpreting the Scripture, you need to understand the setting of it. You need to understand the background of and, and, and what's going on in people's lives when this is done so that you can take it. And you're also going to see how wonderfully um, apropos or relevant is the word it is for you and me, even though this is 2,000 years later. I also want you to know that this isn't probably all of the sermon recorded. I mean, this sermon probably went on for hours. 
Now, I'm not going to go on for hours today. We're just going to do just a little bit. But I want to kind of give you the, the background of it. And then next week, we're going to begin looking at the first few verses. And I've entitled it, Blessed. You're going to see how blessed you are. And what does a person in the kingdom have? Who are the people of the kingdom? So today, just buckle up. We're going to look at some background. The first thing I want to talk to you about is the setting of this sermon. And I want to look at it from three different angles here quickly of what's going on at the time that Jesus shows up and he goes up on the mount that we call the, the Mount of Beatitudes. It didn't have a name at the time, but we named it because God's son preached the sermon there. But, but he went up on this, in this valley, and I'll tell you a little bit about that in a minute. But, but the first thing I want you to notice, let's talk about the biblical setting here. You see, the Old Testament... The last book of the Old Testament, Malachi, there's 400 years between it and the beginning of Jesus showing up, or John the Baptist showing up, I should say. Biblically, the Old Testament ends with a curse. Listen to the last word, the last verse of Malachi. And he will restore the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and smite the land with a curse. The Old Testament ends with a warning of a curse, but the New Testament begins with the promise of blessing. The Old Testament was characterized by Mount Sinai. It had all its law, it had its thunder and lightning, it had all its warnings of judgment and curses. The New Testament is characterized by Mount Zion with its grace and its salvation and healing, and its promises of peace and blessing. And you ought to write down Hebrews 12, 18 to 24. It compares those two mountains, Mount Sinai and Mount Zion. The Old Testament shows us the need, demonstrates man's need of salvation. The New Testament offers the salvation, the Savior, Jesus Christ. Old Testament law showed, in fact, that's how Jesus starts, and you're going to see him quote some of the law because until the law was given to show people how sinful they were and are. The law was never given to save people. Y'all understand that? The law was given to show that this is, you know, how sinful you are. You, when you sin, you separated yourself from God. The Old Testament is the book of Adam, and the story's tragic. Adam was not only the first man, he was the first king. Ever thought about that? I'm giving you dominion over the earth. You're the first king. He didn't call him king, but that's what he was. And that king fell, and when he did, all of us were cursed because of it. Now there's another king that shows up, the second Adam, as Romans calls him, and he is bringing a blessing. When the first Adam fell, it brought a curse. This new king is showing up who not only does not fall, he is sinless. He brings blessing rather than cursing. The second Adam, Jesus, is also, by the way, the last one. There's no other king coming after this one. He's going to set up an earthly kingdom one day and then a new heaven and a new earth. There's not going to be any other Adam or new other king that's going to come. The first king sinned and left a curse. The second king, Jesus, was sinless and leaves a blessing. The Old Testament, the book of the generations of Adam, ends with a curse. The New Testament, 
the book of generations of Jesus Christ ends with this promise, Revelation 22, 3, there shall no longer be any curse. The Old Testament gave the law to show man in his misery. The New Testament gives life to show man in his blessedness. He's no longer cursed because Calvary covers it all. Jesus Christ, the new king on earth, came to reverse the terrible curse. So I want you to see how the Old and New Testament, and by the way, you'll see later, that the, that the New Testament does not contradict the moral law of the Old Testament. Amen. It doesn't. It doesn't contradict it at all. Now, the second setting I want you to think about is the political setting. You see, most Jews were looking for a Messiah, They'd been, it'd been prophesied, it'd been 400 years since they'd had a word from any prophet. They were looking for a Messiah, and when they were looking, who they were looking for was a military and political leader that would overthrow the Romans and set up a Jewish kingdom that would lead the rest of the world. He would be greater than any king, he would be a leader, a prophet. And after Jesus miraculously started feeding the multitudes and healing people and showing power, well, John 6, 15 says that the people tried to come and take him and by force to make him their king. They saw Jesus as the anticipated leader, as the Messiah who would set up a welfare state and even in their root, and meet their routine physical needs. He'd take care of them. But Jesus would not allow himself to be mistaken for that sort of king, and he disappeared from the crowd. Later, when Pilate asked Jesus, when he was on trial at the end of his ministry, he asked Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answered, this is John 18, 36, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would be fighting that I might not be delivered up to the Jews as it is. My kingdom is not of this realm. The thrust of the Sermon on the Mount is that the message and work of the king, of this king, he didn't come to set up external things. He came to change people internally, not externally. He, it was a spiritual and moral rather than physical and political. You see, we don't find any politics. We don't find any social reform. We find Jesus concerned about who and what men are because he knows that that will determine how they live. In fact, you're going to see that the Sermon on the Mount is exactly the opposite philosophy than the society we live in is. You see, Jesus declared that John the Baptist, for example, was the greatest man who had ever lived until that time, and yet John the Baptist had no possessions. He had no home. He lived in the wilderness. He dressed in a hair garment. He ate locusts and wild honey. He was not part of any religious system. He had no financial, military, or political power. And in addition to that, he preached a message that to the world's eyes was completely absurd. By the world's standards, he was a misfit. And yet Jesus gave him the highest praise. Now, you're going to see the Sermon on the Mount. You're going to find that the followers of Jesus 
real disciples, real followers of Jesus are characterized by several things. Humility, mercy, pure in heart. They're peacemakers. They're persecuted for the sake of the very righteousness that they practice. They are compassionate. They're yearning for righteousness. But in the world's eyes, they're going to look at those characteristics as losers. Losers. They don't amount to anything. The world tells us to assert yourself, to stand up for yourself, be proud of yourself, elevate yourself, defend yourself, avenge yourself, serve yourself. It's all about me. And these are the traits of the world. And yet the Lord comes and says, that's not the characteristics of followers of Jesus. The third setting is religious. Now, Jesus came... Now, I'm I'm not going to talk about the other world religions, but I'm going to talk about the religious groups just among Israel. There were four groups. The first were the Pharisees. Now, you know about the Pharisees, or you've at least heard that word. They believed that the right religion consisted in the divine laws that were given to Moses and also all of the religious traditions that had been passed on through the generations since that time, that rabbis would interpret that law, add to it, make up more laws. And by the time Jesus came on the scene, Pharisees had more laws than you can imagine. The Sadducees were the religious liberals of the day. They were the ones that did discounted or did away with the supernatural, and they modified the law to fit and the traditions to fit their own philosophy. In other words, we're going to make it fit and twist the lifestyle we want to live. It's a good thing we don't have any people like that today, isn't it? (laughs) Then you had the Essenes. The Essenes were, they were ascetics who believed that right religion meant getting away from everybody. So one group we know of moved out to the, near the Dead Sea in the, in the uh, community known as Qumran, the northwest edge of the Dead Sea. And, and, and they found all these ruins, and, and they had multiple bathing sites. I mean, these guys bathed more than you can imagine because they wanted to keep themselves clean and, and, in order to keep the outward body purified. And, and so they were very meticulous, but they, they just sort of got away from everybody. And then you had the zealots. You see, the zealots believed that right religion centered in radical political activism. They were were revolutionaries who looked down on any Jew who would not take up arms with them and fight against the Romans. So let's put it in a nutshell. To the Pharisees, or in essence, the Pharisees said, go back. Go back to the law. Go back to the traditions. The Sadducees basically said, go ahead. If it feels good to you, we can make it work. You just go ahead. To the Essenes, they basically said, go away. We're going to be clean without you. We don't want to be contaminated by society. And the Zealots basically said, let's go against. And so the Pharisees were traditionalists. The Sadducees were modernists. The Essenes were separatists. And the Zealots were activists. I ask you, do we have those people today? We just don't call them by those names, do we? Well, so Jesus comes along, and to the Pharisees, he says, listen, 
True spirituality is internal. It's not what you do on the outside. There's so many people today who are caught up in the external. They've got to go through all of these things in order to make sure that in their mind they're right with God. Jesus, and you'll see him. I mean, he, he pulls no punches with them. And then the Sadducees, he says, it's God's way, not man's way. You can't make up what you want it to be. It's what God said, period. You don't change it. Then to the Essenes, he said, it's a matter of the heart. It's not a matter of the body. It's not the outside that makes you clean. It's what's on the inside that matters. And then to the Zealots, he basically said that it's a matter of worship, not revolution, not always fighting. And so the central thrust of the message is that every group and every person, no matter what their persuasion is, that the way of the kingdom is first and foremost beginning in the heart, in the soul. That's where it changes. And we know that. We know that Jesus changes our life. It's not the religion. It's not the external things that we do. True religion in God's kingdom is not a question of ritual or philosophy or location or military might, but a right relationship with God through Jesus. Well, the Lord summed it up this way. He said, I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you should not enter the kingdom of heaven in verse 20 of the chapter 5. So he shows what real righteousness is. You and I have our own forms of righteousness. We think, well, you know what? Compared to old so-and-so in here, I'm pretty good. Compared to that other group over there, I'm pretty good. But when you see the real righteousness of Jesus and then you see man's righteousness, you know, man's righteousness on his own just will not hold up to the scrutiny or the examination of God, it just does not add up. It just doesn't make it. You're not going to make it on your own. You're not going to make it on your looks. You're not going to make it on your finances. You're not going to make it on your background. You're going to make it through Jesus alone. That's it. Well, that's a little bit about the setting. Let's talk about the significance of it. The theme of the Sermon on the Mount is the gospel of the kingdom. He's going to mention the kingdom many times. He speaks, first of all, about the citizens of the kingdom. He describes their character and their blessedness, their relationship to the world. He talks about them being salt and light. Then he, then he sets forth the righteousness of the kingdom, the high standard of life demanded by the king. And, and Jesus shows that this righteousness is in agreement with the moral truth of the Old Testament, but it's not in agreement with the rabbinical interpretations and additions to that moral law. You're going to see there are three, three sets of laws given to Israel. Two sets of those have changed. But the moral law, the moral law of the Old Testament has not been changed by the New Testament. In fact, the New Testament takes it a step further. So when people argue, well, that's Old Testament. If it's, not a, if it's a ceremonial law and a national law given to Israel, it's changed. But the moral law has not changed. We'll eventually get to that. But he talks about real righteousness. You and I think if, if we attend church on Sunday and we give a little to the offering and, and we don't cuss or chew or go with the girls that do, that we're pretty righteous. 
But you're going to find out it's a lot more than that. That people who know the Lord and, and have him in their life, it's a lot more than that. And, and part of the significance or the reason the sermon is so significant because it shows, first of all, the absolute necessity of spiritual birth. You must be born again to be saved. And you, when you, you must be born again in order to live out what Jesus says here in the Sermon on the Mount. A person who does not know Jesus cannot live this out. They can't do it because they don't have the power of the Holy Spirit in them to do it. It's significant because it shows the listener that Jesus Christ is the only hope of meeting God's standards. There's so many people today trying to make God love them, make God love them more, and to and to try to get rid of their sin, and they're trying so hard. But the only way, the only way, is Calvary covers it all. You've been washed in the blood of Christ. You've been atoned for. It's been covered by His sinlessness. Another significance is that it gives God's pattern for happiness and true success. It reveals the standards, the objectives, and the motivations that God has designed man to have. You cannot be what God intended you to be unless you know Jesus Christ. Because you inherited a sinful nature and we've fallen short of the glory of God. The Sermon on the Mount shows us the, the, the uh, recipe or the truth to live out what God intended for us to be in the first place. You're looking for happiness and success, aren't you? It's right here. And it's not health and wealth. He also states that the life obedient to the principles and truths of this sermon is the only life that is pleasing to God. Now, with that said, the setting and significance, let's, let's look at it. Uh, you've got your Bibles open, and we're only going to look at the first two verses, and you're going to go, are you out of your mind? There's nothing in the first two verses. It's what you think. First of all, notice the scene of the sermon. And seeing the multitudes. Let's stop right there. Everything Jesus said on this occasion was spoken publicly. The multitudes. Jesus was always concerned for the multitudes. He was. He, he had great compassion whether they were distressed and downcast in Matthew 9, 36, whether they were sick in Matthew 14, 14, whether they were hungry in Matthew 15, 32, or in any other need whether the people were physically ill or healthy, emotionally stable or demon-possessed, financially poor or rich, politically oppressed or powerful, religiously insignificant or influential, intellectually ignorant or educated, Jesus had compassion on them all. And the good news is that includes you and me. We're in those groups. In this congregation right now, you're probably thinking, well, I, I, nobody really knows me. I want to tell you, the Lord does. He knows your name. He knows everything about you. He knew you before the foundation of the world. He knew you before you were born. He knew you would be here on this day. He loves you. He cares about you. He has compassion for you. you that I, I will tell you, now, you, the reason that people in here will let you down is because everybody in here is just a sinner. And we're flawed and we're not perfect and we do things wrong. And if you're looking for saints, this group ain't. <laughs> <laughs> I 
except that we're saved and that makes us the saints of God. But if you're looking for perfect people, you've come to the wrong place. This is a big hospital for sinners. But there is one who loves you deeply, who's perfect, created you. You were no mistake. God created you. He did. You were not a mistake. Even though your parents may have, you may have surprised them, you were not a mistake. <laughs> you know, he wanted the multitudes to recognize their sin and then see the need for a Savior. It's interesting. One person said this, in any church service, the congregation preaches more than half the sermon. Preaches more than half the sermon. So if you ever hear a bad one in here, it's more than half your fault, not mine. (laughs) The congregation brings an atmosphere with it. The atmosphere is either a barrier through which the preacher's words cannot penetrate or else it is such an expectancy that even the poorest sermon becomes a living flame. Holy Spirit will speak to you if you come looking for something. It's interesting what people say after church service. Somebody asked the church decorator. Wayne, Wayne does a lot of flowers, and he'll get a kick out of these. They asked the church decorator what she did with the flowers after the service, and she said, oh, we take them to the people who are sick after the sermon. One man said to his pastor, Pastor, you were, you were good this morning. You were really good. You interrupted my thoughts at least a half a dozen times. <laughs> Jesus saw the multitudes. Many times he wept over them. He may see the multitudes in here today, but he sees you personally. And then then it says he went up on a mountain, verse 1, and he went up on a mountain. Now, I've already mentioned to you, that mountain wasn't named. It didn't have a name. And it's not a mountain like you're going to see in New Mexico or Colorado. It's basically right there on the edge of the Sea of Galilee, and it's a big hill, but there's a natural sway up there, and it it makes a, a natural amphitheater. In fact, the acoustics are so good, I've been told that when you stand down on the shore of Galilee and you're up at the top of this hill, which is a lot taller than here, that that you can hear a person speaking. And so Jesus is speaking right there. It's not far from Capernaum where he spent most of his time. But we've named it the Mount of the Beatitudes or or the place where Jesus preached the Sermon on the Mount. It didn't have a name because it does now because God's Son preached there. And the greatest preacher who's ever lived preached the greatest sermon ever preached. And and the scripture says in chapter 7 that when he finished, verse 28 and 29 of chapter 7 says, The multitudes were amazed at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one having authority and not as their scribes. You see, in those days, he didn't quote any scripture. He didn't quote any rabbis or any tradition. He spoke on his own authority, and that was unheard of because Jews who spoke always had to quote some credible or reputable source. He didn't need a source. He is the source. Now, don't miss this. Look at verse 1. He went up on on a mountain... And when he was seated, folks, we are doing church all wrong. I should be seated. You should be standing. (laughs) 
don't miss this. Really, don't miss this. When a rabbi sat down, it meant something. Now, he could be teaching his followers while they were walking. He could be teaching them while they were standing. But it never was considered official. Or maybe it, was, uh, it wasn't authoritative. It was informal. But when he sat down, it meant it was authoritative. It meant that it was no longer candid. It was no longer informal. There was something official about to happen. Even today, even today, we hear of people who hold a certain, professors who hold a certain chair in the university, don't we? He's the chair or the, you know, or whatever. I remember at, some, at seminary, it was a chair of evangelism, the professor of evangelism. It's still that same concept. It's still a, a sign of honor. But here it meant that he was about to speak and it meant it was official. It, it was something important. His disciples came to him, verse 1. They were in the audience. The multitudes were there. But the disciples were in the audience but I want you to know that not everybody in that multitude liked this sermon because you must follow Jesus in order for this to be relevant to you. A person that doesn't know Jesus, this is not going to make any sense. The world will not be living out the Sermon on the Mount because it, it's, it's ridiculous to them. It's totally opposite of human nature. But when Jesus comes in and changes your life, these things begin to work. And his disciples were there. So that's the scene. Now, the last thing I'll share with you this morning, and then we'll get into the rest of this beginning next week. I want you to notice what I call the substance of the sermon. Now, verse 2. When you look at verse 2 at face value, it kind of looks ridiculous, doesn't it? How else are you going to teach unless you open your mouth? I mean, why did he put that? Why did he? And Jesus opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Am I the only one that thinks, well, why did he even write that? <laughs> Obviously, you're going to open your mouth, but this was a common phrase used to introduce something that was especially serious. And especially important. It shares a heartfelt testimony. It's both authoritative, it's intimate, it's the most of the utmost importance delivered with the utmost concern. In other words, this was not just a simple, let me make you feel good day. This was Matthew's way of saying, this may be the most important thing you ever hear because it does tell how to get into the kingdom. It tells about the righteousness of the kingdom. And I failed to mention a moment ago at the end of the sermon, he invites people into the kingdom. He says, this is how you begin. This is how you finish. The teachings of the Sermon on the Mount are for believers and he establishes a standard of living that's counter to everything the world practices today. 
But folks, I want to tell you some good news. It talks about being blessed. And this blessedness is not produced by the world. It's not produced by your circumstances. A lot of people answer today when you ask them, how are you doing? And they say, blessed. Well, they're thinking of financially or healthy or whatever. But I want to tell you, your circumstances don't bring the blessedness that Jesus is talking about. The good news is your circumstances in the world can't take it away either. No matter how difficult things are in your life, the blessedness that Jesus is talking about cannot be taken away from you. And the teachings of the Sermon on the Mount make mark a distinctive lifestyle that should characterize disciples of Christ. That's you and me. But the problem is the standards of the world are beginning to override what Jesus told us to do and how to live. In fact, churches today have even adopted the standards of the world in order to try, in order to try and draw a crowd Jesus' new way of living comes from a new way of thinking, and the new way of thinking comes from a new life that he's put in you. No one knows more about a product than the manufacturer does. When you buy a new power tool or an appliance, it comes with a manual. And if you're smart, you'll at least glance at it, unless you've already got one and you're replacing it. Now, (laughs) Have you noticed in those manuals about the first three or four pages is a bunch of stuff that you go on, why do they have to put this in here? Because believe it or not, I guess there's people too stupid to know to plug it in. I guess. I don't know. It says plug it in. Duh. It's got a plug on the end of it. Shouldn't I know that? And maybe they're afraid to create a lawsuit. I mean, there'll be a lawsuit if somebody, you know, sticks their finger in the plug and holds the plug or something. I don't know. A lot of y'all may be thinking this sermon's that way, those first few pages of the manual. But I want to tell you, you get later in that manual, you find out a lot of things about that product. You find that what it's designed to do, what it's not designed to do, what the limitations are, how to take care of it, how to clean it, how to store it or whatever. Well, who knows better about his creation? than the creator who knows more about you than God nobody does the sad thing is that a lot of the creation does not call upon the creator to help them and guide them and lead them this sermon makes it clear that when you follow Jesus there are internal changes that bring external changes And when our attitudes and thinking are right, our actions will fall into line. If our inner life is not right, our outer life is not going to be right. It will be deficient. That's why James wrote, faith without works is useless. Paul said, we're created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. You're going to see that you don't live this way to be saved. You live this way because you're saved. And folks, if you don't know Jesus today, the most important thing I can tell you is that God loves you. God wants you. He wants to forgive you. He wants you in his kingdom. He even paid it all for it to happen. 
He came, became one of us, lived a sinless life, died on the cross, showed us God's love, died on the cross. God placed your sin and my sin on him, and he died. His sinless blood atoned once and for all for the sins of the world. And when you place your faith, you repent of your sin, place your faith in Jesus Christ, he saves you, changes you. You don't just pray a prayer. You commit your life. You trust him. Would you bow your heads with me? Thank you, Pastor David. In this overview of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, we're able to explore not only the biblical setting for Christ's teaching, but the political and religious contexts as well. We explored the significance of the sermon, which is found in Christ's Gospel of the Kingdom. We saw the scene of the sermon, and we explored the substance of it, discovering the utmost seriousness and the vital importance of the teaching that is to come. Thank you for joining us for this week's message. Be sure to catch our next installment of the Southcrest Live podcast. Thank you for listening to today's message. If you would like more information, to make a commitment, or to request prayer, please text the word podcast to 555-888. You can also connect with us on our Southcrest app or our website for complete worship services or to plan to visit us in person. Thanks again for listening.